Hello and welcome back to AI Ideas. Uh, my guest today is Eileen Hunt. She's a professor in political science at Notre Dame. We're here to discuss her book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein. And uh, it's a book that I loved, Eileen. Thank you so much for writing it. And it situates this book, Frankenstein, this amazing book, Frankenstein, which to me is a foundation of so much uh, of everything that's happened in the past 200 years and our thoughts about um, life. I mean, not just artificial life, but life and literature and parenting, as well as another book by Mary Shelley, um, The Last Man. And you tie it in, I mean, I think just beautifully into both the political milieu of this tumultuous time of revolution and romanticism, and also so many works of art and political thinkers. I mean, everything from Blade Runner to Francis Fukuyama comes up in this in this book, and I, I just thought it was it was great. And as soon as I saw it, I knew I had to have you on the show. So thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. I'm really honored to be here. So I thought we could start before we get into the book and the ramifications of it. If you could just briefly tell us a little bit about the life of Mary Shelley and you know she she had a very strange life both of her parents were incredibly influential um her her husband was also influential she, i would say she herself is probably more influential than any of them but the, the having come from this time and place and family i thought before we did anything else get people to understand what it what it meant to be the daughter of uh of godwin and wollstonecraft because that's really something yeah it is really something she's the daughter of political philosophers two of the leading political philosophers of the enlightenment era her mother, Wollstonecraft, wrote the first book-length philosophical treatise to defend the rights of women as integral to the concept of universal human rights. That book was published in 1792. It made her name internationally as, an, as the leading advocate of women's rights. Uh, and her father, Godwin, published a work, uh, Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, in 1793 that uh, made him a household name in political philosophy, uh, especially of the radical sort. He was known for defending an anarchist vision of political community, uh, interestingly inspired as much by Edmund Burke um, as the social contract tradition um, of the uh, late 17th and 18th, 18th centuries. So uh, with two political philosophers as her parents, Mary Shelley was set up to, in some sense, engage political philosophy in her writing. Uh, later on in her life, she uh, reflected on why she herself didn't become a political philosopher proper. And what she said is that she always felt that she could see the other side of the argument. And for that reason, she felt better suited to write fiction. And I think she was right in that because fiction allows a writer to adopt multiple perspectives through the points of view of, of the characters in the story. And so in some sense, what Mary Shelley did in Frankenstein is engage with enlightenment political ideas, uh, especially the ideas of her parents. Uh, and uh, she used the characters in the story, especially the scientist Victor Frankenstein and his creature, um, who is unnamed. Uh, uh, to engage different points of view on the ethics and politics of bringing life into the world, um, whether that be through the family um, or whether that be through futuristic forms of technology. Uh, but she was also 
um, later in her life, um, uh, as a teenager, um, uh, the uh, wife of Percy Shelley, uh, the famous romantic poet, Republican, um, an all-around radical and free lover, and uh, they eloped when she was just 16 um, in 1814. Um, he was still married at the time and had children with another woman, Harriet Westbrook. So their elopement was really quite scandalous. Uh, they, they were basically disowned by the Godwin family um, and Percy struggled with his own family over matters of, of financial support in the wake of him leaving his first wife for Mary, for Mary Godwin. Shelley. Mary and Percy would not marry until after Percy's first wife, Harriet, committed suicide. Okay, so there's there's a few topics that um, I want to make sure we discuss. One of them is certainly the role of the parent. And before we get to that one in, in the text, um, my understanding is that, you know, so she did not actually know her mother, if I've got that right. Her mother passed away either in childbirth or, or right at the very beginning. And I have you know it has been suggested that in some ways uh the book frankenstein is is in response to her relationship with her father the education that she received from godwin which in some ways was a quote man's education i mean if you're if you're like me and 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 you as well and you study the this 18th and 19th century so often the the fantastic women the, the fantastic intellectual women were given a man's education very often by an, an eccentric father who either had had some sort of feminist beliefs or in some ways wanted a, a son or, or something along those lines. And so it seems like we can start there before we get to the relationship between Dr. Frankenstein and his creature. I thought we could start with with Godwin and his and his daughter and how that informed this her, her ruminations on parenting, which in some ways her entire project is about parenting. For sure. Uh, decades of feminist scholarship have pointed out the impact of losing Wollstonecraft so soon after her birth on Mary Shelley as a writer, especially as author of Frankenstein. Um, images of motherless creatures abound in the novel Frankenstein. Virtually every character is motherless in some way. Um, but the flip side of that is the specter of the tyrannical father. Um, uh, the father, like say Rousseau's um, tutor um, in the Emile, who um, treats his young charge as a kind of marionette um, that can be manipulated in every possible way, including everything the child reads. Uh, and if you remember, in the novel Frankenstein, a lot of emphasis is placed on reading yeah. and the formation of the creature. Um, the creature um, learns by, by reading uh, a few books, including Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, and uh, it's interesting also to note that Mary Shelley, at the time she was writing Frankenstein, was also reading um, Rousseau's Emile and was aware of the ways in which Rousseau imagined his um, ideal system of education working by way of a all-controlling tutor, um, meeting out very particular texts for um, his student to read. Um, and those included um, Robinson Crusoe, for example. Uh, and so um, Mary Shelley, uh, I think, wrote Frankenstein not, not only as a uh, critique of 
Enlightenment philosophies of education, such as Rousseau's, which were hyper-individualistic and isolating in the way they construed how children could be protected from the corrupting influence of the wider society, but also as a personal critique, a personal critique of the way in which her father, um, as a philosopher, um, had raised her very young uh, to engage the ideas of the European Enlightenment um, around the dinner table. The biographer Charlotte Gordon has written in her magisterial um, double biography of Wollstonecraft and Shelley, um, Romantic Outlaws, that, that, that basically the Godwins were trained, the young Godwin children were, were, were trained to read and debate Locke and Rousseau around the dinner table. Um, and uh, Mary Shelley, um, rebelled pretty early against this regime. Uh, in age 16, she elopes with, you know, the leading romantic poet rebel of the time period, a married man with two young children. Um, and she not only elopes with them, she takes her, her stepsister with her, Claire Claremont. So the elopement was extremely uh, scandalous. It was an extreme act of rebellion against a childhood in which um, Mary Shelley probably felt largely abandoned by um, caring maternal figures um, and felt overly um, hemmed in by her father's kind of relentless rationalism and focus on her, the development of her mind above all else. There was a lot of pressure in the Godwin household for Mary Shelley to become a writer of the stature of her mother. Um, and Mary Shelley always took that very seriously. And I believe throughout her life, Mary Shelley always did strive to be like her mother. Um, but I think she rebelled against her father's attempt to force her to do that. Uh, and she did it her own way, ultimately. Okay, that's that's fascinating. And, you know, I'm, I'm not really an expert on John Stuart Mill, but I know that he he too had an incredibly intense childhood and had some form of rebellion. I am, this is time for the obligatory mention of William James, who has to come up on every episode of A Ideas. And he too was was pressured to be this towering figure and and two had a, I mean, he had a, if not, a, he didn't have a rebellion, he had a complete mental breakdown. And then in some ways he devoted his entire career to redeeming his father's ideas because at, by the time that James was a mature philosopher, his father's Swedenborgianism had become uh, a, a joke. And I'm, I was just struck as you were talking about Mary Shelley, how these, so many of our, the intellectual figures that we return to over and over again, and, and James's ideas are some of the ideas I return to over and over again on this podcast, can be tied into the family and parenting in a way that the novel Frankenstein really gets to, but a, tr a political treatise would perhaps be unlikely to do so. And it makes complete sense that she was more comfortable writing in that mode. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. And Mary Shelley was um, deeply immersed in Greek tragedy during the first year of her elopement with Percy. Um, there's evidence in her journals that she was copying down um, a quote from Aeschylus, and, um, Seven Against Thebes, and modifying it in the end papers of their co-prep journal. Um, and uh, she was in, in, in her modification of that quote concerning Oedipus, she was effectively identifying with the dark fate, the heavy fate of Oedipus herself um, and in the way that her own 
um, family life was was kind of spiraling into disaster that year with um, uh, her father disowning her and um, her stepsister due to their running off with Percy and um, and Percy subsequently having an affair with Claire while Mary suffered um, the death of their firstborn daughter, Clara, um, in early March of 1815. Um, so very early in Mary Shelley's adulthood, um, which is age 16 to 17, when she becomes a mother and then loses her first child, uh, Mary Shelley comes to understand herself as a tragic figure, mm -hmm. in part because of the conflicted family dynamics um, that emerged from the Godwin Godwin Shelley families and their interactions with one another. These families were radicals and they were experimenting with new ways of organizing marriage and the family. And uh, when they came together, it was explosive. <laughs> yeah, I, I could say so. So I'm, I'm actually thinking, Eileen, we can um, talk about the, the parental relationship between Victor Frankenstein and the creature now, or we can move on to, to literature because you brought up Aeschylus and of course there's the modern Prometheus. We can, I mean, I think we're, we're gonna have to come around to the creature and, and how the creature is raised or not raised at some point, but this might be a good place to talk about Milton and and tragedy, if that, if that sounds good to you, because there's certainly, there's this moment in the, where, you know the creature is exposed to literature, especially, especially Milton, and this is a this great story of rebellion, which Byron especially encouraged people to to read with, with Satan as the hero serves as a as an important learning experience for this creature who has received no no parental guidance or rather parental rejection insofar as Victor is the creature's parent. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. So not only Greek tragedy, um, but also Milton's Paradise Lost are, you know, two of the most important um, allegorical resources uh, for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, the relationship between um, Milton's Satan um, and God, for example, is uh, the one that the creature himself um, likens his relationship to uh, Victor Frankenstein. Um, and uh, the creature says at one point to his maker, um, you know, I originally felt that I was Adam, you know, when I read <laughs> Paradise Lost. But what I realized is that I was, I was, I was actually more like Satan you know, that I, I had been cast out um, from a very early time um, out, of, out of heaven itself. And um, I had been denied all community um, with my creator and all the evil that came after that sprung from that fateful rejection. Um, so the creature blames his father for rejecting him. And this, this becomes quite poignant in light of Mary Shelley's own feelings of rejection by Godwin during the time that, especially when she and Percy were um, unmarried, which I believe is from um, the summer of 1814 to the very end of 1816, December 1816, I believe is when they are finally married, just about two weeks after they learn of Harriet Westbrook's suicide. So one of the things that comes up over and over again when you study, you know, conservative or reactionary movements is the way that it does seem like the 
the patriarchal family is sort of the source of the way that people want to articulate the government, the father of the nation, that sort of thing. It's also striking when you look at so-called radicals or people who wish to be radical politically, how rarely the men can see that the the patriarchal family is is another source of oppression and exploitation and it just seems to me with without deep knowledge of the relationship between godwin and uh mary shelley mary godwin shelley the 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 man who kropotkin calls the inventor of anarchism should have been prepared for anarcho-feminism of that kind that that he clearly but he clearly was not prepared to question his own personal authority in the same way that I think Victor Frankenstein is unwilling to consider the challenge to his own personal authority and feels very benighted and put upon when the creature turns when the creature turns against him. Once I'm the I'm the creator, I am the God. How could you do this to me? Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Uh yeah, I think it is really interesting that. In some sense, Godwin didn't see this coming. <laughs> and in some sense, Victor Frankenstein doesn't either. Um, right. And uh, there, there was a tradition in the scholarship of reading Victor Frankenstein more as an analogy for for Percy Shelley, mm. as we know, Percy Shelley, when he studied the Eton, was interested in all sorts of um, occult subjects. He was also very interested in science. Um, he may have, may have blown up a few things. He may have, <laughs> may have electrified a few things. So he did some kind of quasi Frankensteinian uh, experiments as a young man. Um, and so there was a history of comparing Percy Shelley to Victor Frankenstein. And I think that there, there's, a, there's a lot of truth to that comparison for sure in the novel um, and in, in, in there's a lot of reason for making that comparison when we look at the novel in light of Mary Shelley's own life and tumultuous relationship with him, the way that Percy was quite an irresponsible father and husband, um, for example. Um, but, but, but also I think it's, it's potentially even more productive to think of Victor Frankenstein as, as a kind of Godwinian mm-hmm. um, figure, um, you know, maybe a Godwinian figure who encompasses both William Godwin and Percy Shelley, because Percy Shelley initially came to visit Godwin because he really admired both the writings of Godwin, um, Godwin's anarchist writings and the feminist writings of Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, which brings me to your original question is, isn't it strange that a lot of radicals, a lot of anarchist figures in particular, just didn't um, subject the family and marriage to the same level of critical analysis as they did other institutions in the society. Um, well, Godwin himself did evolve a bit in the 1790s um, through his relationship with Wollstonecraft in particular. Um, he originally really thought of marriage as something that 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 was... Um, uh, undesirable. He himself was a bachelor uh, until he uh, married Wollstonecraft. Um, and uh, like Wollstonecraft was a critic of the institution of marriage um, as it was known in the period. Um, but through his relationship with Wollstonecraft, Godwin started to see the family in a more um, uh, um, positive sense uh, because mm-hmm. Wollstonecraft, though she was a critic of the traditional patriarchal family in its legal institutionalization, in the period, 
Um, she also thought the family could be reformed. Um, and so, so Godwin, in his later writings in the 1790s and his subsequent editions of political justice, starts to develop a kind of kinder, gentler vision of what the family could be, um, um, a, a space animated by mutual affection. And we can see some of this language coming out in Frankenstein, actually, because um, what the creature confronts his maker with is, is, is a demand for the fulfillment of a basic right he has, a basic right to live in the interchange of those sympathies which are necessary for my being. And uh, the creature craves what he lacks. He lacks affection. He lacks friendship. He lacks companionship. He lacks community. Um, that's what he demands of his father maker, father creator. Uh, and uh, Victor Frankenstein, of course, fails to do this in the novel, <laughs> but he does try. He does initially agree with the creature when the creature confronts him with this demand. He agrees that actually as his parent figure, as his creator figure, he does have an obligation to supply this, this basic right um, to, to, to live in the interchange of those sympathies necessary for our very being as human beings. Um, so there is this moment in Frankenstein when the creature and Victor Frankenstein meet on the Merida glass in the Alps, um, where the, the, the scientist does recognize his creation's humanity. Um, it's important to remember that the creature originally was designed to be a human being, hmm. a, very, a very large human being, but a human being. Uh, and it's only after the creature is animated um, by Victor Frankenstein that the scientist recoils in horror because he no longer sees his creature as beautiful, but rather as hideous. Um, but I think in the novel, what Mary Shelley is doing through this um, dialogue between Victor and the creature is illustrating many of the ideas of her parents um, and the ways that um, a, a, a full-blown enlightenment rationalism, um, you might say, divorced from any concern with affection, community, um, love, is a dangerous project <laughs> to undertake. Uh, and so in other words, she agreed with her mother's corrections to the rationalism of her father's project. And, and she, she, she ultimately was trying to reconcile, I think in many ways, the ideas of her parents um, with, with, with a strong um, sense of uh, favor for her, for her mother's views in the end. Um, uh, I think that like her father, she, she probably could be understood as something of a, of an anarchist uh, in, the, uh, in the sense that she was certainly willing to run away from all the conventional institutions of, of British society in 1814. Um, so I think that's a good point. And that's one that's not often made in the scholarship. I think there's a tradition of reading Mary Shelley as something of a conservative. Mm. Um, and I, I, I'm not convinced that's true. I mean, I think there are there certainly are elements in Mary Shelley's thought that are are conservative or traditionalistic. But as 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 you know from studying the anarchist tradition, um, anarchists come in all stripes, <laughs> and 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 a lot of early kind of British anarchism, like Godwin's branch was actually interested in almost a retreat to a kind of state of nature, something outside of cities, something um, back to the land. Um, you know, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley weren't quite that extreme, 
but they certainly were interested in this possibility. Can we escape from the corruption of kind of mainstream European political institutions? Can, can we do something different with our lives going all the way down to the level of the family? Um, and that they, they both shared with both Wollstonecraft and Godwin. Yeah, I, well, this is a project for a, a different podcast, but I don't think it's a coincidence that it is actually the great conservative Burke who writes the very first uh, British anarchist treatise and claims that he means none of it. But as, as I think you have said in your own work, that it, it's actually quite a, Bur a Burkean document. He, he comes to all sorts of conclusions that Burke, we know Burke would not publicly espouse, but in his treatment of how anarchism is sort of, you know, the could be thought of as practical and cultural as opposed to in this Rousseauian way, like rationally derived. Bur Burke sets the stage for this tradition of, you know, George Orwell called himself a Tory anarchist. Plenty of ways that William Morris is also hearkening back to this earlier society. And it, and it is Rousseauian in that sense of this, like, you know, actually anarchism means throwing away the enlightenment rationality that will make these mind forged manacles um and also uh and also real manacles which are a lot easier to make when you have an industrial civilization mm -hmm. that's right that's right um and i i do argue in artificial life after frankenstein that burke's um a vindication of natural society was one of the pivotal influences on both William Godwin and political justice and on Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley read that work by Burke as well as other works by Burke prior to writing Frankenstein. Um, also her later novel, The Last Man, has many direct allusions to Burke throughout. Um, and in many ways that novel, which is about a global plague that sweeps over the earth and seemingly kills all but one man, um, is actually an illustration of many of Godwin's theories about mm -hmm. how, about anarchism. Uh, because at the end of the day, the novel is about the breakdown of traditional political institutions. Right. Um, and so in some sense, the end of the novel ushers in the, this possibility of, of rebirthing the political order, perhaps, perhaps along an anarchist vision. Um, okay, uh, I, I want to get pretty soon to the idea of the creature as a, you know, as a machine that that learns and as an artificial life form. I want to get there by talking about the way that one last thing about literature, which is it does seem that one way to understand this novel is as a creation story. And we are awash now with scientific creation stories. And I think you can make the case that this is the very first scientific creation story. But in some ways, before we get to how scientific it is, I, I want to raise the issue that, that you raise in your book that, you know, something like everything from Prometheus stealing fire to Yahweh creating Adam and Eve, it seems like one of the central stories we tell is, you know, with or without evolution, how humans came to be. And in this sense, this is perhaps the oldest genre. This is the, can be seen as the first science fiction novel or the first political science fiction novel, as I know you have written, but it's also, it is a creation story, which, you know, Milton and Melville and Genesis and Gilgamesh all, all fit into this narrative. And I, I find that the, the tension between the modernity of the science, because it is very up-to-date science for this period mixed with some 
alchemical properties, but then the resonance with the entire cultural tradition of creation cut to today when actually we are creating something. I mean, it's, it's, it's debatable what it is we're creating, but scientists are creating things that if not our artificial life are verging on artificial life. And Shelley reminds us, this is not a new story. Maybe it's a new thing, but it's not a new story. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, for sure, Mary Shelley was deeply aware of the, the many literary, mythological, and religious antecedents to to her version. You know, of the Promethean, the Promethean myth of mm -hmm. uh, of a, a, de a demigod who um, uh, makes life, uh, makes human life um, uh, through the intervention of technology. Uh, and I think Mary Shelley's really important philosophical contribution to this vast literature of creation, of human creation of other life forms through the interventions of their own technology is that Mary Shelley had a very expansive conception of technology. Mm. For her technology actually harkened back to the ancient Greek term, which she um, would have known because she started studying ancient Greek with Percy in September of 1814 when they returned from their elopement. Uh, Mary Shelley knew the Greek concept of techne, meaning art or craft, um, and, and she would have had that expansive ancient Greek conception of techne or technology derived from that, from that, um, that, that, that understanding of technology as art, craft, which, which, which involves all things made by human beings through, um, uh, through art. Um, so, uh, but art can mean anything. Art can mean writing. Um, art can mean um, the, the spoken word. Uh, and obviously she as a writer, um, I think thought of, of the technology of the pen as really one of the most fundamental means for human artifice of the world around us. And um, so I think when we think about human beings having a power to artificially shape the world and to, to create things through their own artifice, sometimes we think of it in very abstract scientific terms. Um, uh, and I think it's actually good to kind of pan out a bit and think about technology as much wider than just engineering and science. Um, technology is art and craft, um, and that would encompass anything that human beings do with language, including writing. Um, so uh, Mary Shelley as an artist, as a writer, um, in some ways gives us license when we think about debates on the ethics of making artificial intelligence today or artificial life forms today, to, to think more broadly about the value of human interventions in the environment. So not all of our interventions in the environment through artifice are bad. It's not that science in itself or technology in itself is bad. If that was true, almost everything that human beings have done through their culture would be bad. Um, that's a very extreme point of view that Mary Shelley, I think most definitely would challenge. Um, she had read Rousseau, she had read both the first and the second discourse, as well as Emile prior to reading, writing Frankenstein. Um, she was aware of Rousseau's view that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that basically human beings introduced evil into the world through the introduction of private property first and foremost, but, but really through all of their cultural interventions in the wider environment. Um, and so, um, and I think it's really important to differentiate 
Mary Shelley's philosophical views from that over show, because um, some people have read the novel as a morality tale against science itself. Um, but I think that it's more important to understand how how science, in some sense, is, um, you know, uh, the kind of uh, it's it's it, science is not as important as as techne in the novel techne in this broader sense of art and culture, um, and uh, what Mary Shelley I think is arguing um, contra Rousseau is not that we need to uh, peel back um, the influence of culture the arts and sciences. On, on 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 the modern human being. Um, what she's arguing is that we need to be responsible about how we use culture, how we use education, how we relate to children, how we impart culture, how we use art and craft in our relationships to younger beings whom we bring into the world and we shape through 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 our um, through our learning. Um, and I think in some sense what Mary Shelley is saying is that, Human beings can't escape being intelligent. Um, it's part of our culture. Um, uh, so Contra Rousseau, who in the first discourse famously argued that we should have kind of less education um, in order to be happier and more virtuous. Mary Shelley isn't saying less education. What she's saying is we need a more humane education. We need an education that will lead us to become not just intelligent, but emotionally and culturally intelligent. Uh, and I think that's her most important lesson for AI ethics today. Um, so AI ethics today often revolves around questions like, should we even be making artificial life forms? And in my book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, I, I made the very simple historical point. We have already made artificial life forms. Um, we have already genetically engineered children. We've been doing this since the late 20th century, in fact. Um, this isn't often acknowledged, but we, we are doing it and we will continue to do it. The point is not, should we make <laughs> these creatures? It's how should we do this? Because we will continue to do this. And in some sense, as you point out, human beings have always been fascinated with the potential to make artificial creatures. Our mythology reveals this. Our, our, our religions reveal this. Our, um, our, our literature reveals this. And in some sense, human beings have always been involved in the artificial formation of life forms through the rearing of children in particular. Yeah, that was that was just what was springing to mind to me the, as you were speaking is in some ways we have no choice but to, we are all artificial life forms in, in some sense, we have no choice but to have been created and we have no choice but to create. E even if you yourself are, are not a parent, all of the people around you are in some ways, you know, especially those younger than you, especially if you're interacting with small children, you are in the act of creating them. Now, I do have the, I do take the, I guess, somewhat Rousseauian line that one of the most dangerous things you can do is think that you can rationalize um, this process. Obviously, people uh, disavow the eugenics movement for its, you know, its 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 racism, its proto-Nazism. But the eugenics movement, I also want to disavow its belief that child rearing could be rationalized. They really thought, I mean, and this is the kind of thing that, that creates the breakdown of someone like William James or the alienation of someone like Mary Shelley. If you think you can rationalize the education of a child, you are you are going to create a, a monster actually um either you will create a monster or you are the monster or perhaps both 
Yes, yes. And I think there, Mary Shelley, I think in Frankenstein, enacts a critique of Rousseau's Emile. Mm -hmm. Because I think Rousseau's Emile is more along the lines of that, that all controlling uh, tyrannical mode of education that, that believes, oh, all we have to do is come up with the right principles for mm -hmm. the education, <laughs> isolate the child in a kind of social experiment of sorts, um, and then run the experiment. Um, to get the result we want, the virtuous result we want. Um, and uh, Mary Shelley, I think, probably saw herself as something of a product of that style of education mm -hmm. under her father's watchful eye when she was young. Uh, and um, and I think that she's, sometimes what she does in Frankenstein is she she takes a meal to its logical extreme. It's It's let's not just isolate the child from society, as it were, um, uh, under the watchful eye of a tutor, let's explore the other side of parental tyranny, which is abuse and neglect. Mm -hmm. So it's, an, it, I think, a fascinating psychological thesis of Frankenstein that is rooted in Mary Wollstonecraft's thought um, is that tyranny can take um, the form of neglect or abuse. Um, so tyranny does not only mean hovering over someone and manipulating their every move. Um, uh, tyranny can mean uh, being uh, a neglectful parent, um, uh, somebody who abandons their child. That's just as tyrannical and all controlling. In fact, it's it's actually maybe the most extreme form of parental tyranny because only a parent would have the power to do that to a child and to elicit the worst effects from that child's um, experience of abandonment. What is worse, in other words, than being a child who is utterly abandoned by their by their um, parent creator? So yeah, so I think Mary Shelley is very much interested in engaging in a kind of a thought experiment uh, to explore and test some of Rousseau's theses on education, but in a way that ultimately agrees with her mother's view on tyranny as the, the worst thing you can do to another person, whether that be through um, uh, violent control of them or through violent abandonment of them. Excellent. Okay, I think we're finally ready to to get to this topic of of machine learning because the it it seems to me I wasn't around in the in the fifties and the sixties, but it seems to me that if you were thinking about AI at those times, and when you look back, what those people are writing about is a certain form of control of of logic of rules famously there's asimov's laws of robotics although as you have mentioned those are really more about creating ethical and moral dilemmas than they are about at that, that that you can resolve in a narrative than they are about imagining how a machine would be nevertheless i do think the laws of robotics work well in the sense of like how would you create artificial intelligence where you would want to really really you know a computer with lots of programming power and then give it some rules and then it would go and seen from this perspective mary shelley's frankenstein is as irrelevant to this process as the book of genesis if the way we would make uh artificial intelligence is through logic and rules but in fact insofar as there have been great gains over the past few decades it's been what's called machine learning which is this iterative process that 
to my lay opinion, bears a certain extent uh, similarities to human learning and even to teaching. You know, you 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 don't give rules; you give experiences and sets of data, works of literature, and then the machine has to make sense of them and then sort of create a new copy of itself that hopefully makes more and more sense. And now we are dealing with the ideas, I think, that come up in Frankenstein. And insofar as there's people like Nick Bostrom and uh, the guy who wrote that recent book about long-termism that is very stupid, in my opinion, insofar as we're worried about creating these, these Frankensteinian monsters that learn too much and destroy us, I would like to turn people back to the actual novel because that's not the danger that she is warning about, a creature that will learn too much and destroy us because it overleaps us. It's about a creature that has been uh, abused, has been brought into a world in which it has no place or he has no place, and that people have not thought about what their role and duty is to their creation. At least Victor Frankenstein hasn't, and I don't think Nick Bostrom has either. Hmm. Yes, uh, you know, I agree with you that the way that AI is developing, it would seem that it, it, it actually bears a lot of resemblance to human learning. Um, so machine learning, ironically, is a lot like human learning. <laughs> uh, Alan Turing actually had this view um, near the end of his young life. He was theorizing uh, AI along the lines of a child machine. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he argued that uh, rather than make a kind of Frankenstein's creature out of the parts of different machines and assembling a giant creature that could walk on its own right away, uh, he said that that we can do that, but that would be a disaster, basically. Mm -hmm. It would probably rampage across the countryside <laughs> like the creature does in um, James Whale's 1931 film Frankenstein, which I'm pretty sure Turing was alluding to in this mm. passage from his 1948 paper, Intelligent Machinery. Um, so after he entertains the possibility of creating a giant um, automaton uh, creature um, that is uh, able to uh, walk and move on its own um, immediately after being brought to life, Turing says, instead of doing that, let's think of, of, of machine intelligence in terms of the parent-child relationship. And so the programmer or the computer scientist would, would have to look at, actually in, in Turing's view, each iteration of, of the machine um, um, as you would um, a child. Um, and uh, there would have to be a, a way in which the child would have to be raised and directed um, toward certain learning goals. Um, and so today when, when uh, computer scientists and programmers train AIs to um, sift through massive amounts of data and, uh, um, uh, and, and, as, and as human beings um, and operators of the internet help um, these AIs to identify patterns in, in data, um, uh, we, we, we effectively are doing, I think, what, what Turing imagined um, uh, um, uh, humans would do in relationship to the building of artificially intelligent uh, machines, um, that we would we would have to provide a kind of teacher-like, parent-like guidance um, to the machine in order for the machine to start making the right kinds of inferences, so that they can identify patterns in the data that are 
that are correct um, uh, and not just um, logically correct, but ideally in the end, ethically correct. And I, I, think, I think Turing had a sense of that I and mean, he died so young, he was never able to really realize this direction of his thinking. Um, but I've read his papers from the last few years of his life and it does seem as though he was moving in this direction of thinking of, of, of the intelligent machine as a child machine. Um, and that was something that um, I think would have carried on in his work. Um, and, uh, and I think it's actually quite interesting that he seems to allude to the 1931 Frankenstein film in his 1948 paper on intelligent machinery in which he discusses the child machine. Uh, because he, if he had seen the whale film, then he, he would have known that um, whale had, had effectively represented the creature as a kind of overgrown abandoned child who doesn't know how to operate independently um, and ethically because he has lacked a parent or teacher figure. Um, and so if Turing had seen that film and it was, it was you know, globally known, um, you know, he could have easily seen it uh, um, in, in London. Um, uh, you know, he, he would have been familiar with the story, the basic story of Frankenstein as received from Mary Shelley. Um, and therefore, I argue in Artificial Life and Fra after Frankenstein, we, we can see a kind of genealogy from Mary Shelley to Turing um, in AI ethics. Um, and it revolves around the image of the, of the um, artificial, artificially intelligent creature as, as a kind of child for which we have responsibility as parent teachers. Okay, wonderful. The other thing I want to stress is that, you know, to a certain extent, the set of ideas that I started working through when I started this podcast come from Wittgenstein and Cavell. And both of them are really interested in showing that the, the the sort of logical sense of the world that we are working with, and that I think that AI researchers are working with when they're teaching a machine how to play chess is radically insufficient for the kind of the, the amount of processing, but the most importantly, the kind of processing that that humans are doing. And if we're looking for a kind of intelligence that can that can learn, that can care, that can love, that sort of thing, we are going to have to return to an embedded sense of intelligence, a socially and emotionally embedded sense of intelligence. And if you want to find a story, well, there's lots of stories, certainly starting with the work of Philip K. Dick. There's lots of stories that do this in the second half of the 20th century and onward, but I see nothing really before Frankenstein and really not anything for a long time after Frankenstein that suggests that you could create an artificial intelligence and then how it is socially and emotionally Im embedded in society, raised, what what literature it reads matters as to whether it's going to be the, the kind of person that you want to be a part of your society. And whether it's really good at chess does not seem to come into it very much. Well, I mean, Mary Shelley's literary and religious inspirations are important here. I mean, Milton's um, Adam, Milton's Satan, um, the Genesis story itself are, are important sources for Mary Shelley's conception of a hyper-intelligent artificial, artificial creature who has immediate language capability, <laughs> so on, um, you know. And so, so Mary Shelley did have important religious and literary precedents for her ideas, but I agree. What Mary Shelley did in 1818 by publishing Frankenstein was truly ingenious and unique. 
Um, and that's why AI ethicists to the present day keep looking back to the story of Frankenstein as a modern myth, you know, the modern Promethean myth that helps us to explain and articulate what it means to be a being capable of bringing other beings into life through our technology and arts. Yeah, I think that's, and you know, I want to, I want to, as someone who works on these issues from the side of the humanities and someone, you know, who's doing the same work as you are, I, I want to move people's gaze away from something like Asimov. I want to move people away from uh, lines of code and and the famous, you know, the gray metal boxes that talk from Star Trek and everything else to, I mean, something like Frankenstein, but most particularly just Mary Shelley's work, Frankenstein, that it is, it is a modern myth. And it is one that not only have we not exhausted, I think in the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence, artificial life, we are just, we are just getting started tapping into it. For sure. Yes, I totally support that project. And I, I hope your listeners, uh, you know, have enjoyed our discussion. And um, if they have any questions about my take on Mary Shelley and artificial intelligence, they can feel free to look me up at the University of Notre Dame. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Eileen. This was such a pleasure. Thank you.